0: What's good for the U.S. economy is bad ultimately if it forces the Fed to move faster and higher. So rising consumer confidence and more job openings could be the good news that's really bad news. Uh, The euro has managed to gain a little ground this morning because presumably of falling gas prices. But inflation in Germany was higher than expected. So does that mean 75 basis points next week from the ECB? So there is some bad news that actually is bad news. There's just no good news that's good news. That's all. It's Wednesday, the 31st of August, 2022. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, U.S. stocks continue to fall this morning. The Nasdaq losing 1.1% at close. That's 25% down so far this year. Now back at November 2020 levels, the Dow is down 1%, 1 .1 1.1% off the S&P 500. Little movement in the U.S. dollar on the DXY. That's been the story the last week or so, though, hasn't it, really? The euro, though, is up a third of 1%, holding above parity with the U.S. dollar. The pound is down a third of 1%. The Aussie down half a percent to just below 68.7 U.S. cents. Bond yields uh, are quieter. Well, In the US, no movement at all, really, for 10-year yields. Two years are up almost four basis points. Not much movement in Europe, though, except for the UK, which has seen 10-year yields up 10 basis points, up to 2.7%, which is just about the highest since 2014. Two-year yields are up almost as much, just shy of 2.9%. I think you've got to go back to 2008 to see them that high. And Aussie yields, meanwhile, are falling down six basis points yesterday for 10-year yields, down to 3.6% at the end of the day yesterday. Day, not much movement on futures since then though and big falls in oil down five percent for brent uh, around 98.40 a barrel now a 5.4 percent drop in wti dutch gas futures fell to a low of 242 euros overnight that's a 7.2 percent drop on the day uh, just a little above 270 right now so that's good news sort of Uh, here's some more good news Uh, we are welcoming sally old from jb weir to the morning call she joins us uh, from sydney this morning welcome to the team sally Thank you very much, Phil. It's been fairly quiet on bonds and equities overnight, unusually so lately, but, you know, it never stays calm for long, does it? I mean, for example, the VIX index, that fear gauge is still pretty elevated. So what's everyone waiting for? Is this sort of like holding out till we see what the jobs numbers look like in the States at the end of the week, do you think?
1: Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, I think we should probably put it in context and both bonds and equities have had some pretty decent moves in the last week or so, but... You know, Fed Mm. officials made it pretty clear over at Jackson Hole that, you know, there was no uh, pre-commitment to a certain size rate hike at the September FOMC, and they said they would be very data dependent. Um, And pretty clear about the two main pieces of data that are going to be very influential will be this week's payrolls number, which comes out on Friday, and then the next inflation number, which comes out before the September FOMC. So sort of feel like the market's probably paying pretty close attention to both of those numbers um, mm. but as you said you know some pretty big moves in in UK fixed income um, as as well and obviously over there you know the situation with inflation is is pretty acute yeah. and I think the market is is probably you know on notice and nervous yes um, also about the upcoming Bank of England meeting
0: yeah exactly we'll come on to that in just a second in, in the United States just finishing off there though I mean if the, if there's a concern that the US economy might be headed, heading into a recession uh The data isn't supporting that right now, is it? I mean, we have had some soft data lately, but overnight uh, it's going the other way. So job openings for July, for example, back on the rise, uh, up from just over 11 million to 11.2 million uh, in the private sector, 7.2% more jobs than a year ago. I mean, that doesn't sound like an economy running into trouble, does it? But of course, that's great news, but it's bad news also because the Fed's going to be looking at that and going to be concerned about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what it tells us really is that the labour market remains still very tight. And, and I think that's feeding into you know expectations for a pretty decent payrolls number this Friday, where the consensus has settled on a, a rise of about 300,000 for, for jobs in the month of August. Uh, August and also you know an unemployment rate that's going to be pretty stable around that 3.5% level. So the job openings number you know up a couple of percent in July, very strong. Um, and although it, it's somewhere a little bit below its March peak, I think it really tells us that it's still very high relative to its pre-pandemic norm. Yeah, and it just speaks to the fact that you know the Fed still has some more work to do to take some of that tightness out of the labor market.
0: Yeah, and and you know it, it's the fact that it's turned and it's going back the other way, isn't it? And and it's the private sector where those job openings are uh, are appearing. I mean, there's there's less jobs in the in the public sector. Uh, So, uh, you know, and obviously the private sector ones are the the ones that can, because that really tells us the the way the market's really going. So, yes, very tight. And the other read that was a surprise was the consumer confidence read from the conference board also higher from 95.3 up to 103.2 so back over 100 after three months of falls this is also changing direction
1: absolutely so i think the story there is really one around what's going on with gasoline prices so we tend to find that the higher gasoline prices move um, the lower consumer confidence goes so we've seen as oils come off obviously a bit of a fall in gasoline prices, and this is giving a little bit of a boost to consumer sentiment. So we're seeing that across the board through last night's conference board measure and also the University of Michigan consumer sentiment measure that was out last week. So I think what that also tells us is just it really speaks to this story of you know potentially better consumption outcomes um, as we head into the end of the year, just as that heat comes out of some of those headline inflation pressures that recede somewhat disposable income might go up a little bit in, uh, in a real context in the household sector. So I think that, again, speaks to this idea that, you know, the Fed is going to have to keep on going because the way things are working out as we head into year end, we're getting a labour market that's still pretty tight um, and the outlook for household consumption is probably going to be marginally better into year end than it has been through the middle of the year.
0: Mm. So, yeah, for example, things like vacation intentions on an eight-month high. So people are you know, willing to get their wallets out and spend. So, I mean, does that mean soft landing or does that mean harder Fed and no guarantee of a soft landing?
1: Yeah, I think it actually means, you know, a harder Fed because, you know, we Mm. know how this works. You know, monetary policy is all aimed at getting inflation back to target at the moment. Powell was really clear about that over the weekend. Um, and he was also really clear about saying, look, there will be costs involved in that process, and those costs are going to come in the form of slower economic growth and a weaker labour market. Um, and as much as central banks would love to sort of deliver that outcome, where they get inflation back to target and they deliver a soft landing, I think they've been pretty clear about saying it's a, it's a very narrow path to to land the economy right there. Um, and so, what they're really saying is that you know the the risks are basically that in order to bring inflation down, you know, we might have to force. Um, some sort of recession onto the US economy. So, you know, I think the, the, the view that we've been running with at JB Weir, and I know our colleagues at NAB Economics have a similar sort of view, is that, you know, ultimately, this will probably deliver some sort of recession in the US, maybe starting later this year or early in 2023.
0: So good news is bad news in the US. Uh, in Europe, bad news is bad news. Uh, there's, there's no good news around at all, is there, Sally? Sadly. Uh, so we had the European inflation numbers. Uh, well, the, the European ones are out today. We had the German inflation numbers, I should say. the, uh, the preliminary for August, which was higher than expected, coming in at 7.9% year on year, which is close to a 50-year high. I mean, that presumably piles on the pressure now for the ECB, and there'll be more talk of perhaps a 75 basis point hike next week.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So you know, we, we get these sort of preliminary estimates. We've got some for Germany, as you said, uh, also some for Spain. And what that basically tells us is when we get that European-wide measure uh, later today, that's going to come in somewhere just shy of 9%, um, and core inflation should come in somewhere around 4%. Um, But the bad news for Europe is that that's not the end of the story on inflation. And if we sort of look towards where we think those inflation numbers might be tracking um, in the fourth quarter of this year, European inflation is going to be closer to 10 percent. And that's largely a function of what's going on with gas prices. And so, you know, we heard some pretty hawkish commentary from a number of ECB officials over the weekend at Jackson Hole. um, And that's basically telling us that when the ECB sits down to meet in September, that the decision they'll be facing into is, you know, should we go 50 or shall we sort of follow the Fed and, and potentially deliver a 75 basis point rate hike? And I think when we see that inflation number later today, that'll probably be pretty influential. for yeah. that
0: decision. And yet, you know, to temper all of that, gas prices, you know, as I said in the introduction, they have fallen quite a bit. I mean, the market's been a bit enthused by that, presumably mm. that's why the euro is holding up pretty well today. And the fact that Germany has managed to stock up so many reserves, I don't know how they managed it, close to 85% capacity now, but I'm also not quite sure how long it lasts. If there are no supplies from Russia, if they don't open the pipeline again in a few days' time, I mean, they're closing it today. Uh, but I mean, generally, that's been good for the euro, even though, you know, circumstances haven't really moved on too much, have they? <laughs>
1: No, they haven't. I mean, I think the the story in Europe, as you as you said, um, you know earlier, is is still a pretty sobering one in the sense that inflation mm. is you know double digits by the end of the year, um, and there are some meaningful downside risks to growth, you know, around that that energy supply story and and what's going on with with gas prices. So there may be a little bit of, of better news in the sense that short term gas prices are down a little bit, and and as you said, the Germans have managed to accumulate some pretty decent inventories but I'm not sure that either of those two things you know really sort of change the broad distribution of risk to, to European growth which is um you know I think most people now are pretty pretty convinced that they will enter recession in the fourth quarter of of this year so You know, a a similar sort of dynamic to what's playing out um, in the UK. We'll see what
0: the ECB does next week. I mean, obviously, 75 is the new 50, isn't it? Uh, The Bank of Hungary actually pushed up their rates 100 basis points overnight. So these are crazy times. Even crazier, uh, Goldman Sachs forecasting (laughs) that if the UK energy price gap goes up to, uh, cap I should say, goes up to 80% in January, UK inflation could hit... Twenty-two percent. I mean, you know that that's back to seventies sort of numbers, and of course we all remember with great trepidation how how high the interest rates were back then.
1: Yes, they are eye-watering numbers um, for sure, and I, I guess they just really speak to the the very awkward and very difficult dilemma facing into central banks, you know, at the, at the moment, which is that you know they've been set up, you know, we've had this institutional framework that's that's worked pretty well for the last couple of decades, but it's all premised on this idea of you know central banks being faithful to their inflation mandate. So to a certain extent, um, you know, they have no other option really than, than just to, to pursue that story. And I think, you know, as, as inflation numbers continue to print on the, the higher side of expectations and these forecasts for where inflation will peak in places like the UK um, and Europe, you know, continue to get revised higher, um, you know, I, th- I think the story that goes alongside that is, you know, a sense that the downside risk to growth in that environment are, are definitely mounting and, and hence why, you know, the the sort of stagflationary recession calls for the UK and and Europe are now, um, you know, pretty widely accepted.
0: Yeah, it seems inevitable, doesn't it? So look, if you push up interest rates, stands to reason that that people lose interest in real estate. Uh, So those building permit numbers for Australia yesterday, I know it's only one month, but for July, a 17.2% fall month on month, that was uh, certainly a big surprise.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the consensus was only looking for a, a much more modest decline of 3%. Um, And what we find is when we look at the building approvals, there are two parts to it. You get the approvals for detached houses, um, you know, which were just, they were actually up a little bit in the month of July. And you also get the approvals for the apartment or multi-dwelling sector. And these tend to be pretty volatile month to month. Um, And they're actually down about 43, 44% in the month of July, which is a huge number. Um, But I think we know what the narrative is there. And there have been, I think, a number of stories um, of late, about some developments being either deferred or completely scrapped, just on the view that you know developers are facing into a pretty nasty combination of obviously you know significantly higher con- construction costs, um, a very uncertain demand outlook, um, and tighter financial conditions. And so, sort of not surprising to see that sector, I, I guess, wilt a little bit in in the face of. Um, all those challenges. But basically it leaves us not that far from where building approvals were tracking pre-pandemic. So when we look at the actual number of approvals, we're about 6% above where we were before the pandemic started. Yeah. yeah, And, yeah, and comparing nope. that to other countries, you know, that's that's actually reasonably soft. Like if we look at the same sort of story in New Zealand, they're still up about 32% relative to where they were pre-pandemic um, the US is a little bit over 20% pre pandemic. So it does tell you that this sector in Australia has adjusted quite rapidly to, to rising rates. And what it tells us is that part of GDP, which we call residential investment you know, is actually going to be detracting from growth probably from the fourth quarter onwards.
0: So obviously the Aussie dollar gets hit by risk sentiment, although it's sort of Mm. avoided that quite a bit lately, hasn't it? But it is down a bit today. And obviously there's, I mean, there's geopolitics at play. I mean, we haven't talked about it a great deal, but I mean, Joe uh, Biden's administration now is trying to get $1.1 billion worth of arms sales to Taiwan. That whole situation between uh, China and Taiwan is still bubbling along. So I wonder whether that's going to influence the the Aussie dollar, A, because of the, the, the risk sentiment attached to that. I mean, there are probably bigger risks to worry about right now. and We've been talking about them today. But also, you know, is Australia going to be guilty by association with the United States if, uh, if China and the US, uh, you know, start to uh, uh, throw words at each other? Let's hope that's where it finishes.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, obviously, that announcement came out overnight and, and the Chinese have sort of responded already and so they're not very happy about it. Mm. Um, but I think you're exactly right. So, for the Aussie dollar, we've got this combination where, you know, clearly there's broad US dollar strength. As data have printed on the better side of expectations, the market starts to gravitate, you know, towards expecting another 75 basis point rate hike from from the Federal Reserve um, and then we have, obviously, the, the sort of geopolitical issues in the backdrops so in the background. So that's not a great environment for the Aussie dollar. Um, but I think, you know, this is something that we're starting to learn to live with because it doesn't feel like um, the tensions between US and China around Taiwan um, are going to go away anytime soon. And so, you know, probably mm. for the first time in quite a while, my sense would be that, you know, we, we are going to start to have to accept that, these geopolitical risks, which are always present somewhere in the world, um, but in, in Australia at least, we've we've sort of been lucky in the sense that most of them have taken place um, in in sort of far flung destinations. Now we have one that's right on our doorstep, and I think um, yeah. you know my, my sense around this would be that global capital is probably you know starting to price in some risk premium in into the Aussie dollar um, around that story, and I don't think that's going to disappear anytime soon.
0: No. So talking about China, we get PMIs out this morning for August. The manufacturing one, of course, was below 50 last time. Non-manufacturing was still expanding, but they are in lockdown. COVID still a thing, so I wonder whether we can expect much of a change in those numbers. We also get uh, inflation for Europe, which we've talked about, and the GDP growth rate for Canada, which despite the aggressive moves by the Bank of Canada, the, the economy is still expected to be growing, isn't it? Actually, p- possibly picking up its rate of growth, possibly to up to 4.4% annualised for Q2, so there's a Another good news is bad news story, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it it just sort of shows you, you know, how robust a lot of these economies were for the first six months of the year. And they're carrying a lot of momentum as we move into the back half of 2022. And this is what the data are telling us that, you know, even though there were some pretty big and pretty steep rate rises from the Bank of Canada, the economy is still doing pretty well. So we'll keep an eye on that. And as you mentioned, China PMI, you know, manufacturing sector probably broadly unchanged, services a little bit weaker in the face of some of those COVID lockdowns. Um, but I think we all sort of know the story there, which was, you know, an impressive rebound in, in the second quarter, but, you know, definitely losing momentum as we as we move through the third quarter. Yeah.
0: Sally, it's great to have you on. Look forward to you. are going to become a regular. Uh, so that's great to have you on board and on, on, on the team. And uh, I look forward to catching you again very soon. Thanks for this morning.
1: A pleasure, Phil. Thank you.
0: Terrific. And there we are. That's the morning call for this Wednesday morning. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. I'm back again tomorrow morning. I'll see you then. Have a great day.